0: During the month that that occurred, uh, five or six aircraft got shot down in the Baghdad area. And and the more I reflected on those events and everything that happened during that month, the more I thought it it was some stories that needed to be told that people needed to hear about what uh, these crews did.
1: This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, episode thirty. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army Helicopter Pilot, Brian Harris. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Episode 30 of the Low-Level Podcast. Here as we close out the month of August, I hope you've had a great time at home uh, for summer you've got kids, hope you've had time to enjoy them. My kids are starting to go back to school now. We've had uh, two head back already and another two heading back here real soon. So it will be nice to uh, have the house to myself a little bit, uh, as I'm sure some of you feel the same. Just got back myself from a work trip. Uh, Spent about a month down in Louisiana, which... uh, What can you say about spending a month in Louisiana? Um, It wasn't the greatest, but it was a lot of time in a hotel uh, but I get to fly quite a bit uh, all over the country, down into Central America a little bit, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a good time. Um, learned a lot in the jet, had a lot of a lot of time, a lot of experience with a lot of different captains in the 7-3, and uh, learning some tricks of the trades, so that's been a good time, uh, but good to be home now and waiting for my schedule for September, so we'll see how that pans out, and I don't have to drive back to Louisiana, because I did decide to drive uh, it's about 13-hour drive, but uh, looking at the jump seating plan and how to get to work, it was probably going to be about 13 hours of travel and jumping between planes, if I could even get on said planes, because jump seating is not a guarantee, especially these days. So I figured the easiest thing to do was just drive down there, and it was nice to have my car available. Uh, so, But still, a long drive back. Finished up yesterday, back at the house here for at least two weeks, uh, while we wait for the September schedule and, and see what happens uh, but now I'll be home-based, so I'll be working from home essentially, meaning the company's got to send me to where they want me versus me having to go down to Louisiana. So it could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. We'll uh, we'll just see how it plays out. But before we get into the interview, I do just want to say uh, thank you again, always, for listening to the show and sharing. Uh, but I need you to do a little bit more. If you haven't already, I need you to leave a rating, leave a comment do something uh, because that that helps the algorithms and all that good stuff work through its processes and share the show uh, because the show will not grow without participation from the listeners, without the listeners sharing it, liking it, commenting, all that good stuff. So I'm doing my part. I'm doing everything I can. Uh, You guys uh, need your help, so please do that if you haven't already. And if you have, I appreciate it uh, a lot, so thanks a lot for that. Well, we're going to go ahead and roll into this month's interview uh, looking at the schedule i I might try to do more a month it It really just kind of depends on availability of guests, which of course is probably the hardest part of this job is just finding uh, the right people and uh, and working out the timelines and of course, with the new job, that makes it even more challenging. um uh, but we're gonna we're gonna do what we can at a minimum once a month, like I've said, and uh, m- maybe we'll do more and I'm thinking about some some other changes I might want to do to the show. Uh, we'll talk about that more on the next one. So without further ado, we'll roll into this one. Well, I'm going to put some links down below in the show notes and uh, share them on social media of these uh, books and, of course, this movie. And, in fact, I just spoke to him uh, right before recording this, and it looks like uh, this movie will also be out on Amazon Prime here shortly, he said. No idea what shortly means. He doesn't know either. Uh, it could be weeks. It could be days. could be months. I'm not sure. Uh, but I definitely encourage you to check it out uh, it's a good uh, examination of the day in the life of the uh, the helicopter pilot overseas particularly the gun pilot and uh, yeah just it's worth watching definitely take a look at and uh, like I said in the interview you know it's it's kind of broken up into different stories so you don't have to sit all at once and watch it you can kind of watch it as you go and and uh, and you're not going to miss anything you know you can watch one of the stories for about 20, 20 minutes or whatever how long they are and uh and come back to it later if you uh, want to see more. So definitely encourage you to check that out. And uh, once again, if you uh, are or know somebody uh, who has some interesting tales, some interesting experiences, willing to come on to the show, and I'll tell you, I'm really looking for female guests. I haven't had any. I've received criticism, you know, gentle ribbing type criticism about it. Uh, it's not from a lack of asking or trying. I've, I've reached out actually to several uh, female uh, potential guests and just not really getting any response so I'm always on the lookout and always looking out for really any guests uh, so please reach out to me at brian at the low level dot com uh, we'll put uh, that's obviously in the link down below as well and uh, yeah for those of you who are uh, reaching out let me know how you like the show I really appreciate it again leave some comments leave some likes and we will talk to you guys later take it easy All right, Dan McClinton is here. He joins us uh, on the show. He's a retired CW4 from the United States Army. He flew Hueys and Apaches, and he is also the producer of a new documentary called The Longest Month, and he's here to talk to us about that and his own experiences. How you doing, Dan?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, how are you doing this morning?
1: Oh, not too bad, not too bad. I appreciate you coming on and um, yeah, we'll talk about this movie and some other projects that you might have uh, in the works, but just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into aviation.
0: Well, um, I grew up in Waco, Texas and um, our house uh, was kind of in the, the landing pattern for the Waco airport. And right down the street was the county fairgrounds that had all these old air force jets on it so i probably like from the earliest time that i can remember was exposed to airplanes and stuff flying and and i was always fascinated by it i mean all through school uh read everything i could get my hands on i drew pictures of airplanes and all that stuff always wanted to be a pilot um was actually joined civil air patrol when when I was a teenager and that's how I got my first flight and kind of, you know, they, they allow you to sort of start learning how to fly. It's nothing, um, uh, of, you know, uh, official or anything, but I got to fly a little bit. Um, and so when I, it got time for me to go to college, I actually tried to, um, uh, get into air force flight school because, you know, F-16s and all that stuff I thought were cool. Um, Just didn't work out because uh, I think in college I valued the social aspects of college over the (laughs) uh, studying and whatnot. So I didn't really have the grades to do it. So Air Force didn't pan out. I got a job as a draftsman uh, working for a government contractor and I knew about warrant officer candidates and, and the warrant officer program in the army. And, uh, after a year or so of like sitting behind a drafting table, drawing every day, I I said, I can't do this, you know, 40 hours a week for the rest of my life. So went down to the army recruiter and said, I want to go to flight school and actually, you know, said no to the recruiter a couple of times when they tried to make me, you know, become a crew chief first or, Mm -hmm. you know, told me the, the lie that they tell everybody that it's easier to get into flight school if you're a crew chief before, (laughs) you know? So I said, no, I'm either going to go to flight school or I'm not going in the army. And, you know, I was naive enough to uh, take the test without doing any of the pre-study stuff. And I passed all the tests and uh, ended up going to flight school, came out as a a Huey pilot.
1: Okay. What was that like flying a Huey? That's a little piece of history.
0: Um, actually, you know, if I, if I think back on it today, it's still probably, you know, the, I'm probably going to get a pick kicked out of the Apache club for saying this, but it's probably still my favorite aircraft to fly. <laughs> and, and the reason is, um, it's forgiving. It's, you know, if you get in a Huey and you get it started, you're going flying. It's, it's a really simple helicopter. And I learned more about it. Because I was a maintenance test pilot on UH UH-1s, so I I feel probably more comfortable in it than any aircraft I've flown. Um, I had some experience in Central America flying in Honduras and El Salvador where I was flying almost every day, and it it became an extension of me. It's it's just... um, I had a familiarity with it that I probably never got with an Apache and it's nothing bad about Apaches. It's just sure. the way it is, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, and it's pretty cool thinking about it now because that aircraft is, uh, is a legend. You know, you can't think, you know, see that aircraft and not think about what, you know, army aviators did with it in Vietnam and, yeah, All that stuff yeah and
1: being a maintenance test pilot of course you're gonna know the ins and outs like you said so i can see what you mean you know being an extension of you and just understanding all the little widgets and what's going on what um what other so you said central america where else were you flying to Huey at
0: well i started out at fort hood and that's a constant theme uh, in my military career as I found out, you know, if you want to go to hood, it's usually probably not a problem because people either want to go there or they absolutely hate right. it. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to go there because as I said, I grew up in Waco and my family was in, and Waco is about, uh, about an hour away from Fort Hood. So it's right in the area. So uh, and that's actually how I first got exposed to Army aviation, because Fort Hood would fly helicopters up to that fairgrounds I was talking about, like every year for the rodeo. And uh, I've got a picture of me somewhere sitting in a Cobra when I was like uh, 10 years old. Mm -hmm. So and, you know, it actually made me think I saw saw the other day an article about the Army complaining that they're having a hard time uh, getting the people to join the Army again. And it made me think back to when I was a kid and say, you know, that, um, why don't they do that anymore? You know, that you're, you're not exposing right. children, you know, the only people that get exposed to the military. And I think this is why a lot of, uh, children of soldiers end up joining the military is cause they get exposed to it Yeah. and they're not exposing people in the general population to the army and we're kind of getting off track here, but. That's just something that I thought about real quick.
1: No, that's a good thought because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about my whole career. I can only remember maybe once sending aircraft to like an air show, you know. So that's like, yeah, point. I never it, thought about it.
0: Yeah, I was in the unit and, you know, and, and we, we actually reached out to the air show and got them to ask us and we got chewed out by our chain of command.
1: <laughs> of course. <laughs> <sighs> Let me help you, oh, jeez, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so <laughs> back on track, so you're flying yeah. Hueys at hood, where else, or was it mostly at hood it was
0: it was all hood, and mm. then I went to Central America. I came back to hood mm. and uh this was during the uh Clinton administration, and I ended up I was a Battalion Production Control Officer as a W-2. Hmm. Um, and I got passed over for three in the Clinton administration, and they were letting people go because they had too many people in the Army because right. the Army was drawn down after Desert Storm. Yeah. And um, so I took the money and got out, was out of the Army for a couple of years, and then they all of a sudden they go, oh, we let too many people back go, so uh, back." Out so they go. If you want to come back, you can, you just have to be an Apache pilot. Hmm. Okay. So I came back, went to the Apache course, and they actually gave me a bonus because I was in a window. Uh, for they were trying to entice people to stay because at that time there were so few Apache pilots they were going to Korea and coming back to the States in a constant cycle. And people were just getting out right and left because they were either getting out or getting divorced.
1: So you came back in, you started flying Apaches uh, and this was D models. I'm assuming
0: actually, no, I came back and was uh, flying a models with four ID. Oh, wow. And I did that. And actually I'm glad for that because it gave me, because obviously I hadn't been an attack guy. Uh, so it gave me an entree into the, into that world. And an A model is a lot less, has a lot less stuff that you have to deal with than a Delta model. Yeah. Uh, so I flew an A model, got a PIC in it, flew a models for about two years. Uh, then four ID was like getting rid of their a models for D models. And I came down on orders to go to three, six, uh, cav as they were getting their D models. So in the meantime, I went up to brigade and four ID and was the tack op, tack ops officer up at brigade, uh, for about a year. And then I went over to three, six. Well, first I went to the transition at Rucker for the D model and then came back, went to three, six.
1: So what was that like jumping in the D model after the A?
0: You know, the biggest thing with a D model to me, and for those who don't know, it's got a glass cockpit. And so you, the pilot gets to manage his own information. So there's a lot of different options that uh, a person can choose uh, things that they can bring up on the displays. And to me, it's, it's learning what to ignore, what, what not to try and use because you can so easily reach information overload in a D model. It's, it's about managing what you're looking at and, and finding what works for you to, to be able to get the job done. And I, I think it took me, probably took me till I three, six when we trained up, I to be honest, because I was the battalion tac ops guy or the squadron tac ops guy. I didn't fly a whole lot because the IPs were concentrating on all the people in the, the line troops. And it wasn't till I got to first CAV when I left Korea that I really got comfortable in the aircraft and started, uh, developing, uh, you know, my cockpit setup and where I wanted to be and what I wanted to see in the cockpit and really got comfortable with the aircraft. I think most, most of the things about that, though, um, it's just a question of repetitiveness, you know, using the aircraft. I think yeah. if I would have been in the aircraft like once or twice a week, or, you know, more, even more than that, that I would have probably reached that level a lot lot faster. It's not, I'm not trying to make the aircraft sound like it's so complicated that it takes a long time to get used to it. It's just, uh, it's just using it. Yeah. If you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. It's not hard. I mean, you know, I came from Kiowas, which was a glass cockpit. So that part was easy. You know, I think the the weirdest things were just the acquisition sources and, you know, just the the various ways to kind of do the same thing. But there was just a multitude of ways to do it. And I think, like you said, it, it's none of it's hard. It's just you have to be exposed to it over and over again for, you know, for it to solidify, which is, you know, it's true just about doing anything. But um, but yeah, it's not a it's not an overly complicated aircraft. But to your point, it, it does uh, it does allow you to overload information if you if you let it. So you got to learn. What, what's important like said and what's not
0: I I think you know and we could probably do a whole hour on this about training and the way the army does training and gunnery and, and stuff like that that you know you find out when you get down range that you haven't really been trained to do yeah. what you end up doing and I might be jumping ahead on, on what we're going to talk about but <clears throat> the the way gunnery is conducted and the and for the most part, prior to going to Iraq, the way we trained is not the way we fought. So there was a learning curve like when yeah. you get there. Yeah. And that evolved as time went on. I mean, NTC became – or NTC and JRTC became more focused on what we were actually going to do. Yeah. But to be honest, I, guys coming out of flight school when they went through JRTC, there wasn't enough there, and there's not enough IPs or time to train that got people to where they needed to be before we took them to combat.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that because I, I took some notes when I was watching the movie, and one of those was was some discussion at the beginning about JRTC. But when was so when was your first deployment?
0: Well, uh, I got back from. Three six. Uh, I was uh, in three six when nine eleven happened. Okay. So um, our unit thought we were going to be repurposed and sent to Afghanistan or something, since you know we weren't a- actually formally assigned to anybody. But that didn't happen. We we went over to Korea, and I ended up. Uh, Getting to first CAV while they were deployed to OIF two. So I came back to the States and I was assigned to Fort Hood again. And the unit was already deployed and when I signed it at Fort Hood, they go, and you're going to First CAV and I go, I thought they were deployed and they go, Yeah, they are, are you gonna go through the pre deployment stuff and go over there? I said, I just spent a year in Korea. <laughs> And they go, we don't care, you know, they need pilots, so I uh you know, spent about a month at Hood going through the you know, the pre deployment stuff and uh went over there and met the unit in country and that's that's kind of a weird experience to to try and join a unit that has been through training and at that point they'd lost a crew. I was actually replacing one of the pilots that they lost. So that was kind of a, kind of a weird, it took a while. I think it, it took till we redeployed before I felt like I was actually really part of the unit. So I spent ten ten 10 months over there on that deployment, but that was kind of a awkward is probably the best way to put that.
1: Where were you guys flying out of?
0: You know, and this is weird. Uh, I have the experience of flying out of Camp Taji all three times I was in Iraq. <laughs> so by the by the third deployment, I don't think I really needed a map or anything to, you know, if somebody told me where something was going on, I, I could turn and go there. And actually, mm-hmm. the first time I got to fly all over Iraq, like uh, during that deployment, first cab had the core or... I don't know exactly what the mission was referred to, but I flew almost all the way up to Turkey and uh, we supported Fallujah and the Marines in Fallujah and flew all the way down to almost all the way down to Kuwait on mission. So that was as far as seeing the whole nation of Iraq, I got to do that, which was kind of interesting. It it actually gave you a change of pace. Uh, The other two deployments spent in the Baghdad AO, um, which is good for familiarity, but actually things as got kind of stale. As stale can, you know, as war fighting can be stale.
1: Oh, it just becomes routine. Anything can become routine after a while, you know.
0: Yeah, the human mind's uh, interesting in how it adapts to you know, what becomes routine.
1: Well, let's talk about, uh, this movie, which I did watch, uh, a couple days ago. I, I think it's excellent. I mean, it's really well done, uh, very well produced and, uh, and put together enjoyable to watch. It was interesting to see some familiar faces. Uh, Kyle Cutler. I, I knew him in flight school. I hadn't seen him since I was oh, interested to cool. see him pop up. Uh, Corey Wallace, uh, the armor officer that you guys interviewed. I I'm good friends with him. I had no idea he was in this movie um, yeah. So it was, it was interesting to see some of these faces pop up. Uh, but I mean, tell us a little bit about the movie, the documentary about what it is, what it's about. And, uh, and we'll go from there.
0: Okay. Uh, the longest month, um, well, when I got back from, uh, our deployment in 06, 07, uh, and just previously said it was like in the Baghdad area. Um, uh, had some time to reflect about everything that went on in there. And, uh, one of our crews, one of the pilots, uh, got the distinguished service cross posthumously, which is like the second highest award for valor in the, in the military. And, um, during the particular month that, and he got it posthumously, Mm -hmm. um, one of the, during the month that that occurred uh five or six aircraft got shot down in the Baghdad area and and the more I reflected on those events and everything that happened during that month the more I thought it it was some stories that needed to be told that people needed to hear about what uh these crews did that mm-hmm. You know, that there's people out there every day they were putting their butts on the line for people on the ground that would do whatever they could for those guys on the ground. Even if it meant getting their aircraft shot to pieces, That they would put themselves, you know, between the enemy and those friendlies on the ground to try and protect them. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, as going through the interviews and, and stuff with people for this film, like you know, the, the saying became, you know, if we don't tell these stories, nobody will. Right. You know, but, you know, like you still read books about world war II, but how long did it take historians to start writing books? Like a lot of us, you know, won't remember or even some of us won't be around by the time historians get around to try to reconstruct what happened. So, you know, there's no, well, if you think about it, 2007, and it's 22 now so that's like you know 15 years so
1: yeah it doesn't seem that long ago but it really is
0: so you know we keep if we if we don't do something people are going to forget about it and i don't think these things should be forgotten uh, uh you know people can argue about why we were there or you know the the politics behind everything but that You know, honestly, we didn't have anything to do with that. We were just doing our jobs. And, uh, you know, the people we were fighting were truly evil, bad people. You know, no matter, you know, how we got into that situation, some of those people are the worst people on the planet. So uh, I don't think, you know, it's kind of hard to say what we did was a bad thing. Yeah. And, uh, I think it needs to be remembered.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, like I said, I took some notes, you know, while I was watching it and, um, you know, it's about, I think it's just over two hours, a whole video. It's what four different sort of chapters talking about different, different parts. Um, and I, I was laughing at the beginning cause you know, you, and, and we were talking about this a little bit ago is the, uh, the training challenges and NTC and JRTC and, um, And preparing for that because it is such a different environment and not just physically, you know, looking outside the window environment, but but just the combat environment, because up until very recently, I would say, you know, the army has always been sort of from the training standpoint, postured to fight that big that big war against whoever. Um, And that just does not translate into preparing to fly over Baghdad or Missoula or any of these other places and looking for, you know, two, di- two dudes wearing a, a camouflage jacket and an AK 47, uh, it's a very different, uh, animal. And how do you prepare for that? And JRTC and NTC, at least back in the day struggled a lot. And, and I agree with you. Like, you know, I remember my first JRTC rotation was 2006 as a, a relatively new pilot. And I was like, this is kind of a waste of time, you know? And I think you guys kind of touch on that.
0: Yeah, there could be, you know, total wastes of time. Uh, there was, you know, when I went to JRTC, the best the best thing that happened there, they had this live fire range where um, a vehicle with guys getting trained was going down this road and they would get hit by an ambush. Mm. And they had to call us in. They gave us rockets and 30.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, they had to call us in to hit like these people that are ambushing him and I think that was the most you know valuable training for both the crews and the and the people on the ground because you know to be honest a lot of those guys on the ground the first time they talked to us was in Iraq when they needed help and right. you know and I think it gets touched on in the movie a few times uh, Jimbo Snyder who was one of our IPs like says you know you, part of it you got to Sometimes, like, calm those guys down and just say, yeah. just talk to me and tell me, you know, what you need. Because, you know, a lot of times they're so excited, you know, you got to go through that hole, just, you know, kind of talking them off the ledge, so to speak, just to get them back yeah. down. And I understand why they're excited. Somebody's up there trying to kill them. Yeah. But, you know, I can't really help you unless you calm down enough to, like, give me information to get me onto those bad guys. Because as you're talking about, it's hard to find like two guys with an AK in the middle of a city, hiding in a trash pile, or you know, moving from like, you know, notch to notch in these all these buildings. Yeah. Um, uh, you got to give me, you know, some good information to get me in the right area first.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, back then it was a very difficult. I mean, I one of my last jobs in the army was an OC at JRTC, and so I I've watched it evolve a little bit, uh, you know, it's kind of going back to the old way just cause that's, you know, we're, we're shutting things down in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so we're kind of shifting back, but we yeah, had that focus to allow guys to train. But, but one of the things I think even you said in the movie, you know, JRTC and NTC are not made for aviators, you know, you're right. sort of an afterthought, um, which was very frustrating as an OC trying to manage the training for aviation because we, we, we would try to do things to help them. And then suddenly, you know, the rotational brigade get a wild hair that they want to do something else Well, every aviation plan just got changed. You know, it doesn't matter what we had planned for them. Now they've got to go do this other thing that quite honestly, probably wasn't very helpful for their training as far as aviation. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you
0: something, something that's kind of funny to me anyway that we did at JRTC that they actually ended up shutting us down. Um, based on my experience in OIF2 when I, when we got back, I, I convinced the chain of command to send some IPs and send some pilots to the Ford air controller airborne school, uh, Mm -hmm. at MOTS one, which is the Marine, uh, top gun, so to speak, where they, they teach that sort of thing. And we got a bunch of guys qualified to call in, uh, fast movers on targets. Mm -hmm. So when we went to JRTC, all these guys that had just got trained, because you you know, being an OC, that there's always, like, Air Force guys up overhead during yeah. a rotation doing whatever it is they're doing. So we looked on the ATO, the air tasking order, and got the frequencies of those flights. And our guys were calling or using the Air Force to find bad guys. <laughs> you know, because they can just circle around up there and use their... uh their lantern pods or their uh, yeah. sniper pods or whatever it is they've got and, and find the guys that we're looking for, find the opt for. And we were just wiping out so many people. They just shut us down. They go, you can't talk to the air force anymore.
1: Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's so, <laughs> it's so scripted there, you know, like who's doing what and, and what they want to happen. And we would have this problem all the time where, I hate to say this but a lot of times aviation would go there and just kind of flop on their ass cuz they just weren't prepared for the type of fight and they they weren't used to the type of flying that needed to be done um but when it was working it was phenomenal and when you had Apaches in particular talking to um UAVs it was yeah. outrageous. You know, you would get these highway of death moments where the op four was screaming on the radio for the OCs. Like they're cheating, they're cheating. And we're like, no, we're, we're right here. We're watching. They're not cheating. You're just, you've just been caught and now you're getting crushed. Um, and to the point where, you know, these guys would find the op four before they've even entered play. And so they're finding them all staged, you know, and they start blasting them and you're like, okay, okay, you guys got to back up, but which then frustrates the aviation. Cause they're like, well, we're supposed to be looking deep. And you're telling me I can't look beyond, you know, a K and a half, you know, of the front line. And that's unrealistic. I'm like, I got it. But Louisiana, you know, the training area is only so big, you know, I can't I can't let you right. go further. Um, So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, if you guys could leverage that stuff, which is it's so silly to talk about because that's what we should want to do. We should want to encourage that. But then it goes all the way back to, yeah, but now you're taking the training value away from the ground unit. And fundamentally, that's what those places exist for. You're there. Almost as a training aid, um, and it's funny. The commander of um, what, the the commander of the of JRTC one time, he was talking about this, and he was like, you know, it's almost like you guys, aviation, need your own training center, you know, like no joke. Your, your own NTC type <laughs> thing. Yeah, um, and it's like, yeah, hundred percent. Like, because we're not getting anything out of this, you know, and, and we barely have time at home station to do stuff because you're constantly training new guys and you're constantly You're constantly reinventing, you know, the the training cycle, right? You come back from deployment and you get a bunch of new guys. Well, now i got to spend all my time making them RL1 and ready to go in the next deployment instead of leveraging the capabilities that I've already learned from the last deployment. So it's it's very frustrating to watch. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, on a a similar note, like uh, when I went to the staff course, warrant officer staff course at Rucker, I wrote a paper about starting a – you know how the air force has a weapons school which is like a top gun so for lack of a better term because i know it sounds kind of cheesy but it's like starting an army top gun program sure because we have the army doesn't have any uh training for pilots to make them tactically better right if you know what i mean yeah. and and it it shows and we'll probably get into this when we start talking about these events in the movie. But to me, it shows when you get to theater. Yeah. Because when you initially get there and you're deployed to combat, there's a, there, even though you're in combat, there's still learning going on that, that people haven't been exposed to. Yeah. Especially if you got a lot of guys in the unit that had never been on deployment before the learning curve is super steep.
1: Yeah. Well, even the change in the, deployment timeline, uh, or, or when you deployed, right? So I remember my first deployment to Missoula 2006 and I'm flying with, uh, a seasoned guy in uh, an MTP and, um, it's his first flight on this deployment cause he's been doing MTP stuff. So you we're know, we've been there for probably a month and now he's finally on a, an actual mission and, um, we take off. And the last time he'd been in Iraq was like 2003, you know, like during the invasion, and he takes off and he starts just whipping it around left and right and up and down and you know and I'm over there getting sick. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, why are you flying this way? But it's because that's how he had to fly on that first deployment because they were immediately, you know, getting shot at and all this other stuff. And it's like it's not like that now, you know. Like it's a little bit more calm right now. You know, we go a little bit higher and a little bit slower and we kind of take our time. Um. So yeah, just that, that sort of learning curve. In the same location can change over the course of a couple of years. Oh yeah, but, and I'm sure you guys experience that too. Especially if you're flying out of Taji multiple times, you've seen it change. You know, like I remember my last Iraq tour was 2018, I think. You know, and you still had bunkers. And I was telling the young kids, I was like, you guys haven't really had the perfect, uh, the, the the proper deployment experience because you've never had to use that bunker sitting there. You know, <laughs> you've never <laughs> been, you've never had an artillery or a mortar strike on your. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, well, so going back to the movie though, um, cause I did write some notes and I, what I tried to do is I tried to watch the movie from the lens of somebody who doesn't know too much about what we do. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I, cause I wanted to highlight some of these things cause I, I'm sure that listeners, um, to this, I guarantee it will, will listen or will watch this movie, but some of these things won't make sense to them or they'll scratch their head and say, well, why did they do that? And one of the first things I wrote down, I just kind of wrote these notes is a ride to the sound of the guns. And then I put fallen angel. And so I'm thinking of, you know, the first engagement that's talked about, you know, and and, and there's there's gunfighting on it. And guys, I think they get tasked to go to the farp, get as much ammo as possible and just haul ass south and head to that engagement. Um, and then unfortunately, you know, the, the result of that. Uh, Not not result of that, but what results uh, unfortunately is an engagement that occurs, but then an aircraft gets shot down, and all of the focus changes to that aircraft being you know shot down, and I think that might be confusing to people why that happens. So why why is it that things change when an aircraft goes down?
0: Actually, I I think it's confusing to some people within the army.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) Uh,
0: But I I think it it changes because. If you think about Blackhawk Down, right? Yeah. How many, and this doesn't make the air crews any more special than anybody else that gets shot down or gets shot and killed. But when they started dragging those air crews through the streets of Mogadishu and people were filming it and it ended up on CNN, it changed our national policy. Yeah. When an aircraft gets shot down, it was on the news every night yeah. when a truck hit an IED and a guy got killed. You never heard about it, right? I don't, I don't make those editorial decisions. That's just the way the world is. And when you lose an aircraft, it's going to be, it's going to be a big deal. Over there, like when an aircraft went down, it was like all hands on deck. And, you know, for us, people that were in the unit, I'm not going to allow Black Hawk down to happen again. I'm not going to allow those people to take that crew and drag their bodies through the streets. That's not happening. Yeah. And I don't know about you, like when you would brief, but every day when we brief on a mission, we would talk about, okay, if I got to go down, this is what's going to happen yeah you know, and the wingman would talk about, okay, I will circle you, and if anybody gets within two hundred meters, I'm putting thirty down, and we're they're not getting any closer unless that guy's got an American flag on his shoulder, yeah, yeah hundred percent, and um you know I don't like I said, I don't make editorial policy, but, you know, it becomes a, a worldwide thing when a helicopter goes down. And I think that's why everything changes, Uh because everybody, for the most part, understands, like it or not, that that some people perceive that as a bigger event.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right or wrong. It, it is certainly perceived that way and I, I mean i've seen operations get canceled or modified because of black hawk down like literally heard a brigade commander say i'm not going to have a black hawk down incident you know after being briefed on something we're we're going to change this or we're going to do something different you know things like that um so yeah it certainly it certainly can adjust policy i would go a step further too and say you know for me it was always um this idea that you've got four guys in two ten cans zipping around in some cases, you know, a hundred miles away from anyone friendly, you know, when I was flying in Afghanistan, there were places we were flying where it's like, if you go down here, no one's, no one's here to get you. Um, and so I've always also too sort of equated as, as it's a, it's sort of like, you know, the Ranger Creed, you know, I'll never leave a fallen comrade type stuff. If I'm rushing across this barren landscape to get to you, um, it's sort of this unwritten code that, well, if I go down supporting you, well, then it's, it's kind of, you know, it would be really cool if you could come help me out, you know, if I go yeah. down and I'm nearby. And I think it, I think it strengthens that sort of com that brotherhood between the, the ground and the air forces, you know, that, that we're all in this together. Um, cause it is very easy for us. You kind of touched on it earlier talking about guys, um, you know, talking on the radio and 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 first time talking on radio to ground forces stuff and or aircraft and you're trying to get them to calm down. Yeah, because we know that we can just pull in a little bit of collective and get away. You know, and they can't. Right. You know, they're stuck in it. And we purposely and that goes back to that that comment of of riding to the sound of the guns. We always do that. You know, we always just pull in an armload of collective and just head towards that shooting. A lot of times, not even knowing what we're getting into, um, because that's the other side of that coin that's that brotherhood of like hey there's there's dudes with you know stars and stripes on their shoulders in trouble i don't really know what's going on and i don't really know what's going to happen but we're just going to get there as fast as can and we're going to work it out once we get there um and that's very different i think than than some some organizations can can kind of stay away from that that sort of closeness but we got to get right into it right away
0: well, yeah, that was, uh, you know, what you say about pulling in the collective. That was the rule in our unit. Like, if, if you got a call about a tick. Yeah. I'm That's troops in contact, for those who don't know. But um, I'm going to get there as fast as I can. Yeah. You know, because those guys are on the ground. They're in trouble. They need our help. And that's what I'm there for. Yeah. Um, You know, it's funny you, you talk about, like, what we're going to do if an aircraft goes down and we didn't put this in the film, but you know, because there was probably a hundred stories I could have picked and choose. To, but during that same deployment, uh, third ID came in and, uh, took over part of our AO. Mm-hmm. Well, they had some, uh, Kiowas, uh, flying down in what used to be part of our area of operations. And, uh, one of them got shot down and, one of our crews heard it heard it on guard mm-hmm. um they didn't have to go down there but they went down there and they they spur rode those guys out yeah and that's that's the kind of people that we're talking about they're you know if they you know hear something they're gonna do something and that's sort of the code that you were you're talking about, like riding right to the sound of the guns. Like that wasn't their mission. That wasn't their job that day. That wasn't even their A.O. Yeah. But they heard somebody in trouble and they went down there and they they took care of it.
1: Yeah, it's funny because sometimes you, I mean, you get yelled at for it, you know, like you get in trouble for it. Oh, well, they remember, did get yelled at it. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I remember going going to something in Afghanistan and then after being done, being told by my parent squadron, who I was not with, you know, we were tasked to the Apache is when I was a Kyle guy and my own squadron is yelling at me. They call me on the phone. Like, why did you come down here? This isn't your airspace. I was like, it's not your airspace either. It's the ground forces airspace. And somebody was on a radio needing help and I went to it, you know, and, and that's just the nature of what we do. And, and that's what we got to keep doing. And I, I've never, I've never seen that go past, you know, maybe getting, you know, your, your feelings hurt on a radio call, but no one ever really gets in trouble because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. And that's what you're supposed to do. But, uh, yeah. Well, if
0: personally. they did get in trouble, I think the ground units would have something to say about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. So well, another note, I wrote down a scurry and run versus fight. And I think what I was referencing is you guys talked about it. Uh, one of the experiences that we all have is generally speaking, uh, when helicopters show up to a gunfight, the gunfight stops. Um, and I, somebody mentioned it in the movie. I can't remember which part, but but talks about how there, you know, a lot of these were obviously very intense gunfights, which is why they're in the documentary. Um, it was it was uncommon, generally speaking, for the bad guys to stay and fight when helicopters showed up because they had already, you know, lost the advantage because now there's aircraft there and they they don't really typically have something to counter that very well. Um, but would you agree that you know most times it is that scurry and run type type scenario now you're chasing bad guys you're trying to find them and it was kind of rare rare ish for them to stay and keep fighting it out
0: oh yeah like um that first engagement and on a joff like i told my front seater uh because it was his first a- engagement i said you know as soon as you fire they're probably all gonna like jump in the ditch yeah and uh they stayed and that was Highly unusual because, uh, like, as you say, usually when you show up, the fight's over because, uh, I mean, how many times are you going to watch your buddy get, you know, blown away by helicopters? They're human beings, you know, like everybody else. And, like, we, I think we called off all the stupid ones uh, pretty early.
1: Yeah, um, it was typical. I mean, And, and that, I think that goes back to the right of the sound of the guns because I know, for instance, uh, you know, s- some gunfights – were happening and you would race there as fast as you could because you knew that just me showing up and making noise is probably going to solve this problem. And those ground forces will be able to catch a, a chance to breathe and, and reorganize. Um, and I, I remember one in particular in Missoula where we did exactly that, flew right to it, flew right overhead, and then we started getting shot at. Um and, you know, we started getting questioned later. Like, well, Why did you guys do that? And, you know, but our thought process was, well, we needed to get there and make noise because we thought that would solve the problem. And it, it didn't, you know, just, it just exacerbated. Right. Um, but then that goes to another point that somebody brought up in the movie is um, I think it was actually a quote of you don't know how uh, you have no idea how much you're getting shot at because of the giant fan over your head making all that noise. And, and I would say that's a, a huge reality that uh, a lot of people don't understand. And we did probably didn't understand at the time is just how often we were getting shot at and had no idea that it was happening.
0: Oh yeah. Um, there was an event uh, that wasn't covered in the, in the film where I was flying and I did something in retrospect kind of dumb, but uh, almost came to a hover because these guys were stuck on an Island in the middle of the Tigris and they had, they were basically surrounded uh being shot at so i came to a hover over the top of them and started putting fire into the reeds and uh then i got out of there and came back you know established an orbit uh once the enemy broke contact but the guy told me later like i can't believe you didn't get hit and i go what are you talking about and they go all these people were shooting at you (laughs)
1: you know and i was like
0: i You know, unless I see the... And it's during daylight, you know, unless you see the muzzle flash, uh, you don't, you know, unless they're hitting the aircraft, like you said, you don't know you're being shot at.
1: Yeah, and sometimes you'd come back and it'd be a bullet hole in the aircraft. You had no idea that you'd been shot at or that you'd been hit. You know, I had a wingman come back and part of his blade was torn off. You know, he had no idea. He'd been flying around like that for probably two, three hours, you know, with that happening.
0: I mean, yeah, I had people... The uh, wingmen come back, you know, and they had a hole in the tail boom or whatever, and you go, yeah. wow, well, I wish, you know, because that's an invitation right there. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I remember ground forces sometimes, you know, telling you that you're getting shot at or, or worse, you'd hear them on the radio talking to themselves. And saying, yeah, they're shooting at the aircraft every time. And I was, you know, I'd key the mic like, hey, could you tell me that next time? Like, I'd like to know that (laughs) because I have no idea.
0: Like where it's coming from. Right. (laughs) Give me an idea that's
1: happening now and then I'll know not to fly over that same spot. But, uh, yeah. Which then goes into another comment that I wrote, honestly. Uh, Tactical patience, set schedules and routines. And um, that was talked about in the movie. And uh it's one of these things that we preach to ourselves over and over, but the human mind, like we kind of talked about before likes, you know, it, it can adapt to, to things, but it, it creates a routine. And we do that to ourselves tactically as, as we set up routines. What, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, you know, being the TacOps ops guy, I was responsible for, you know, tracking surface to air engagements and, attacks on helicopters and whatnot and it's pretty apparent that you know most of the shoot downs were because of pattern setting yeah and like you said you know humans they they like patterns or and we're basically lazy creatures that (laughs) if if you know everybody takes the same way to work every day right So like if you're flying and you're told to go to this same place every day, the odds are you're going to develop a a pattern, you know, because you're going to take the course of least resistance like a a river does unless you actively work to break patterns. And I tell you, we sat in, you know, the S3, the S2, uh, the Intel people, s3s operations they would brief crews every every time before they went out on missions would preach breaking patterns Mm -hmm. uh but even if you sit there and preach it people are still gonna people are human you know and people Mm -hmm. are gonna have a bad day and somebody's in and to be honest that's why one of the events in the uh in the film happened is because people were setting patterns and bad guys aren't stupid uh eventually they'll catch on to what's going on and uh, take advantage of it from time to time.
1: Yeah. And you're referencing the the shoot down at the, uh, at the live fire at the test fire area essentially.
0: Yeah. It happened on the 28th of January.
1: Yeah. Which, you know, I think every unit had that. I I know we did Missoula. We would constantly shoot this little Island right in the middle of the Tigris, you know, and it's right there next to a very bad area. You know, in our minds, we were we were pretending like it was essentially uh, uh, what do you call it? Where, where you shoot to just kind of intimidate. You know, it's kind of what we thought we were doing. But the reality is, they could have very easily set up an ambush for us when we were coming in to do test fires there. Um, and yeah, building those patterns. And I was a tac ops guy too, and and I had the same the same struggle of trying to articulate to crews like, hey, we you can't always take off north out of the airfield you know sometimes you need to take off to the east and sometimes you have to do this and try to vary things up and um and the bad guys certainly figure that stuff out and even to the point where it's probably happened to you too but you know i remember landing after flying for you know four or six hours moment i take my helmet off the base gets hit with mortars it's because they're watching and they know like well the aircraft just landed so they can't do anything about it you know (laughs) it's like you haven't done anything for the past four hours but you're waiting till i land so yeah patterns are huge um what else would you like to talk about with the movie anything that anything that you want to share with uh listeners as to you know the importance of the movie and what what it meant to you to make this and and what kind of feedback have you gotten from people that watched it
0: you know it it meant a lot for me to be able to to tell like these stories like i said like um the shoot down out there at the test fire area, the, the pilot, the pilot in command that lost his life. He made a decision to stay in the fight to try and take out the, uh, the people that shot him down. He didn't have to do that. They could have, uh, found a place to land cause there was a combat outpost pretty where, pretty close nearby that he probably could have put it down. And to be honest, uh, the amount of time that they flew engaging the enemy, he could have made it back to the airfield before the aircraft came apart. Uh I mean, there was a fire that he didn't know about, but he knew that the aircraft was damaged and he took that aircraft back into combat to make, try and make sure other people didn't get shot down. And that's why he got the distinguished service cross. Um, people don't, the average American doesn't know anything about that. And it makes me feel good that I was able to get with Ken Christensen, the filmmaker and uh, convince him, you know, after letting him read about these stories and the, and the people that took part in them and everything uh, that I was able to convince him to make this documentary to, to be honest when he first made it and it's still, you know, two hours long, but like I had to, tell him that he needed to tighten it up a bit cause he wanted to put so much stuff in there. Um, I said, dude, nobody's going to watch this as, except people who are in the army because this is like, you know, gone with the wind military, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was all good to me. But like I said, like nobody would have the patience to sit there and go through all of that. You know, it's interesting to me because right. I lived it. Um, But like when we had we had the premiere in Fort Worth in February, uh, we got the Apache Warrior Foundation was uh, was nice enough to rent out a theater in downtown Fort Worth for us. And Mm -hmm. uh, I was shocked at the number of people that came out of there in tears, Mm -hmm. to be honest. And, you know, maybe it's because I was so close to it and I knew the story It doesn't affect me it still affects me, but it doesn't affect me as much as it used to because right. like, you know, you keep, especially when you are working on it, you watch it. I probably watched this thing like 15 times working right. on it. Yeah. Um, so that it actually um, affected me seeing the way it affected all those people. Uh. And I realized, you know, like two of those events that we're talking about involve people, Uh, soldiers losing their life so i can i can completely understand why somebody might be an emotional state about watching that because it is you know didn't get gross about it but we like wanted people to understand exactly what happened
1: there right yeah no it's uh it's a very sobering look at at um at everything you know i mean it it I enjoyed watching the beginning, and it and it just kind of showed the life of living on the on the FOB, and you know I was kind of smiling, you know, just having my own memories and stuff because everyone kind of had the same experience. It just looked a little bit different or felt a little bit different, but and then to just kind of talk about the the excitement and the trepidation and the fear and all those things that happen on those missions, and I tell you the uh, I think it's the last uh, chapter, if you will, the uh, the engagement against those gun trucks and to watch that video of, you know, guiding that missile in, and the video is, you know, smack dab on this uh, truck that's shooting back at them with this, you know, high caliber uh, weapon. And it's just, you know, it, 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 it terrifying <laughs> to watch. And you're just like, you're yeah. just cr- crunched up in your seat like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> is the missile going to get there any fa- you know, any slower? Um, so yeah, so I think for people that are interested in, in the helicopter side of life and how things were for a lot of people for a lot of years. Uh, it's a great example and and it's a, yeah, it's two hours, but it goes by pretty fast and, um, it's, you know, it's four different stories, so you can kind of watch it in chunks as well. So where can people find the, uh, the movie?
0: So, um, it's on a couple of streaming services right now. It's a, it's about to be on Tubi. I I don't think it's on there quite yet. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, you can buy a physical copy at uh, my website, which is uh, dngrpig.com. Uh, I was calling a call at Danger Pig, which was our my unit's call sign in El Salvador. Um, uh, <laughs> but if I wanted that, uh, website uh, address, it was going to cost me a ton of money. So, <laughs> dngrpig was, uh, was available. We're trying to get it more in the mainstream. We're actually talking to some people about distribution rights and all that, you know, stuff that nobody Mm -hmm. finds interesting. Uh, But it's I'm learning more and more every day because this is my first experience with movies or uh, distribution or any of that stuff that there's a lot more, you know, people people are coming up to me or people are emailing me or whatever, like, Hey, we you know, why can't you get this, this on uh, Netflix or whatever? It was like, great idea. You just can't walk up to Netflix and, <laughs> and, uh, say, here, I've got a movie for you. Why, you know, put it on there. That's yeah. unfortunately, that's not how it works.
1: Yeah. Uh, well welcome welcome to the world of content creation because i have people all yeah. the time. oh you should you should interview so-and-so i was like well great Do you have his email because i don't <laughs> yeah.
0: so if uh anybody out there uh listening is a distributor and you want to put this film out there that i would appreciate that greatly but yeah. um uh, yeah we're just doing whatever we can to try and get it out there to a wider audience because i think these uh And I I told you a little bit earlier that while these stories revolve around this unit that I was in, I don't think, you know, the things that happened are unique to my unit. You could probably go to every helicopter unit in the Army, be it scout, be it lift, be it attack, and find some story where people were willing to put it all on the line for those guys on the ground. And, uh, you know, in some ways I I find this, uh, heartening because, um, I had spent about 10 years in the army prior to nine 11. And, uh, if you'd been in the army prior to the war, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of respect for aviation. There were just people who like all we cared about was crew rest and flew around (laughs) and, uh, like, one of the first jobs I had in the Army was, like, flying the CG of the 2nd Armored Division, and he he would constantly, when, he, when we were flying him, he would be on the intercom back there bad aviation. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that attitude has somewhat, hopefully, changed. I mean, you were an OC, mm-hmm. you probably know better than I do, but I, I think they have a better appreciation of what it is that we do now.
1: Oh, absolutely. I've never, I can't think of any experience I've had with a ground, a ground force, whether it's a soldier a commander or anything at any level that didn't absolutely rely upon and, and covet aviation, um, and, and, and want it for everything, which, which unfortunately is to our detriment uh, sometimes, you know, I, I remember JRTC rotations, you know, trying to get these guys to get back into the mindset of fighting a, a near peer threat and telling them like, look, you know, you're not going to have Apaches on station 24 hours a day in that type of environment. Oh no, we know, we know, we're not going to do it that way. You know? And then, and then the first time that some, some infantry unit gets into a tick, what do you, what is the first thing that comes over the net is I need Apaches. Um, yeah. And so they've become very reliant upon that. And uh, that's unfortunate because, you know, in that near peer fight, it's not, it's not necessarily going to be the same, but but yeah, to your point, absolutely. They they value it uh beyond measure. Um that doesn't always play out in the uh I guess the back end of the army. It <laughs> you know, seems like sometimes right. it doesn't it doesn't translate, but certainly on the battlefield I, I think it's there.
0: I think you know what you just said is kind of interesting to me because like I I started out in the Apache world like right before nine eleven, so we were still training that uh deep attack yeah. mindset. And I don't think we ever once trained to support like an- an armored unit or an infantry unit in a in a tick type thing before before yeah. we actually started getting it into that kind of fight
1: yeah now it's a completely different different animal and now it's now it's a sort of hybrid you know and then uh that's the unfortunate thing about I think warfare is you you never know what you're gonna do you just You just get into it and then uh, you adapt as the, as the things, you know, as, as things develop, you can never really plan ahead of what it's going to look like. You
0: know, actually, I I think from an execution point of view, uh, it's a lot easier to do deep attacks than it was to do what we were doing in Iraq. Yeah. Because that was all like a play it by ear scenario. Like I'd leave the, Talk going out on a mission and have a stack of uh air mission requests you know Mm -hmm. we were supposed to cover this convoy and this and that and the other thing and uh during that 2006 2007 i don't think i ever executed a mission i was briefed on like it was always like 911 to this guy or yeah over here cover this medevac do this do that
1: yeah it's ever changing constantly dynamic yeah absolutely well, now that you've got uh, this experience with building, you know, making a movie, you know, we've all seen the success of uh, Top Gun 2. So obviously Firebirds 2 uh, should be on your radar. I can't can...
0: even believe you said that name. <laughs> that's like a bar find.
1: <laughs> There's so many people that that is their that is their experience, <laughs> and their exposure to it. So I think uh, I think it's time to to reengage that one. <laughs> Uh, oh, Lord.
0: I wasn't even an Apache guy when that came out. Actually, I was at Fort Hood when they filmed that. Mm. And I remember guys coming back to the hangar that were extras. Mm-hmm. And they would come in the pilot's office and they go, this movie is going to suck. <laughs> I mean, they knew it before they even like got yeah. through filming it that it was going to be bad. And, yeah. uh <laughs> yeah I wasn't even an Apache guy, and I sat in the theater and I was like a, a yet then and I sat in the theater and just shook my head going this is this is awful
1: well as as a Kiowa guy eventually going through the Apache course, of course firebirds was uh the source of of solving all problems with the instructors when they would give us a hard time about something is you just throw some some firebirds factoid at them, and then that would just kind of shut it down but so uh so what other, you got any other projects other than Firebirds too? What other projects on the horizon, anything you're working on?
0: Um, Actually, I've self-published uh, three books on uh, Army aviation patches that are actually available on uh, Amazon that I, that's a geeky hobby that I picked up like when I went to flight school because, you know, a lot of units have, unit patches and some of them are pretty cool. Uh, and so like I always loved like looking at all the different designs and everything. So, you know, during COVID I had a lot of time on my hands. Uh, so I taught myself how to use InDesign, which is a program that you can use to, to build books with. And I actually built all these, scanned in all bunch of patches in my collection and then got, a bunch of army friends to help me with uh, and collectors to help me and uh, published all these different books. So I've got one book on attack units. I've got one book on CAV units and one book on active duty lift units, which is medevac, uh, air assault and Chinook units. And I'm working on a book with uh national guard unit patches. Okay. And uh, I also wrote a book called Crazy Horse, which was the call sign of the unit that I was in in 2006, 2007. uh, That's going to be out in November and that's being published by Schiffer Publishing. Okay. And that that book's about that whole rotation.
1: Well, yeah, we'll definitely um, keep me in the loop on that one and we'll we'll share the links for that one as it comes out. And then um, I'll put uh, the website up four people um they can try and uh, get a copy of this movie and then uh some links out for these books because i know that uh, i mean yeah people are fascinated with with all manner of of aviation and patches are included because you're right there's some really cool patches out there and and of course guys like us. i'm Clint sure the army that. won't
0: like some of these patches because <laughs> i got some of the man the cab units were some of the some of you kiowa guys some oh. of the patches you made
1: yeah, yeah, there's some bad ones out there. Wow, well, no, nothing's worse than the medivac one with the uh, sexy nurse and the uh, the giant syringe. The, the louder you scream, the faster will come. <laughs> well, I'm gonna put some links down below in the show notes and uh, share them on social media of these uh books and of course this movie and in fact I just spoke to him uh right before recording this and it looks like uh, this movie will also be out on amazon prime here shortly he said no idea what shortly means he doesn't know either uh, it could be weeks could be days could be months I'm not sure uh, but definitely encourage you to check it out uh, it's a good uh, examination of the day in the life of the uh the helicopter pilot overseas particularly a gun pilot and uh yeah just it's, it's worth watching definitely take a look at and uh, like i said in the interview you know it's, it's kind of broken up into different stories so you don't have to sit all at once and watch it you can kind of watch it as you go and and uh and you're not going to miss anything you know you can watch one of the stories for about 20 20 minutes or whatever how long they are and uh and come back to it later if you uh want to see more so definitely encourage you to check that out and uh once again if you uh are or know somebody uh who has some interesting tales some interesting experiences willing to come on to the show, and I'll tell you, I'm really looking for female guests. I haven't had any. I've received criticism, you know, gentle ribbing type criticism about it. Uh, it's not from a lack of asking or trying. I've I've reached out actually to several uh, female uh, potential guests and just not really gotten any response. So I'm always on the lookout and always looking out for really any guests. Uh, so please reach out to me at brian at the hell Uh, we'll put uh, that's obviously in the link down below as well and uh, yeah for those of you who are uh, reaching out let me know how you like the show I really appreciate it again leave some comments leave some likes and we will talk to you guys later take it easy